On today's podcast, we have Dr. Imogen Ko. Imogen's career has been defined by transition, whether it's traveling around the world and looking for new opportunities or merely always willing to step forward and address injustice and advocate for others to bring about positive change. She's a huge advocate for equity, diversity, and inclusion, and especially women's involvement in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. Regardless to say, in a very short career, she has accomplished an enormous amount. So please lean in and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Imogen Co. All right, everybody, welcome back to the pod. Today, I have a very special guest, Dr. Imogen Ko, who is the former Dean of Science at Ryerson, and she has given us a little bit of her time today to uh, do a biosketch with us. So welcome to the pod, Imogen. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Imogen, tell us a little bit about your role at Ryerson. So currently, I am a professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biology. I am a cell biologist. I have a research lab at St. Mike's Hospital, so I'm a sort of a little bit off campus. I'm a little bit sort of uh, separate from uh, some of the other cell biologists. And I was formerly the dean, um, and now I'm a regular professor, and I do teaching and research and sit on committees like everyone else. And before we talk about any of those things, I just want to talk about a little bit of your uh, personal story and your journey. So where's hometown? Where were you born? So I was born just outside of Cambridge, England. So I was born uh, in a little village called uh, Stapleford. Um, and that's where I grew up and did my, um, you know, K to 12. And before we talk about those other transitions, what did you want to be as a kid? Um, you know what? I, I didn't really have a burning passion to, to be anything. I went through sort of the usual... I think I want to be a vet. I think I want to be a doctor. But I just had a, a passion for life sciences. I just, I just love the natural world and I wanted to, to learn about it and keep learning. So uh, it's a good thing that there is something that you can be with that. Um, and uh, so I, I kind of was very lucky that I managed to match what I love doing with the fact that there is a job out there where you can do it. Yeah, for sure. And so tell us about that little journey again. So from that point... Where did you go to, we'll skip all the K through 12 stuff. Where did you go to university? So I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Exeter, which is down in the southwest of England. I have to say that I picked my, uh, the places I applied to for my university education on the basis of how far away from home I could get, um, which in Britain is not very far because it's a small island. So University of Exeter was a long way from home. And I think I kind of wanted to be a marine biologist and it was close to the sea. So I did three years at the University of Exeter, and then I just kind of loved learning and I wanted to keep going. So then I went on to graduate school. And so what, what motivated, you said that you loved learning, was there somebody or something or some event that you could sort of place that said, you know what, I want to do more school? <laughs> like, what was it that made you make that transition to go to grad school? Yeah, I, it's, um, you know, I don't, there, I can't remember there being a single event. I certainly wanted adventure. I wanted to travel. I wanted to go, and that, that came from having spent a summer between high school and university at a research station in uh, Southwest US. So I spent a summer in, in San Diego working for the, working for NOAA, the organization, atmospheric organization, marine biology. And it, I just thought that was fascinating. 
So I came back to university. And then I, I can remember sitting in the library and going through the back pages of science and nature and looking at all of the kind of exotic places where you could go and do science and you could go do life sciences. So I was fascinated by learning about life sciences. I wanted to do more, but I kind of wanted to also bring that together with having some adventure and going somewhere exotic or going going somewhere else. So that was kind of a, a plan. And and before we talk about grad school specifically, what what like a lot of our students don't really have this big desire to travel. What 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 is it that you love so much about traveling? Gosh, I don't know. I, I think I, I think I'm in, I'm ju I'm just kind of genuinely interested in people, in places. Um, I like to hear other people's stories. I like to see how other people live. Maybe I'm fundamentally nosy. I don't know. I, I, I think I like a lot of kind of intellectual stimulation. I just, I really think that there isn't, you know, as somebody said, it's some famous writer said, there's no education lost in travel. So I just thought that that was a tremendously powerful way to learn about people in the world and also do science at the same time. Perfect. And were you a good undergraduate student or were you, how would you just find yourself? <laughs> well, I think I spent my first year getting over hangovers, probably. I did a lot of partying <laughs> and I could always get by. It, so I, I think I was an okay student. I mean, I, I was a good enough student to do what I needed to do to get where I needed to go. So I was <laughs> like, not a lot of wasted energy. Um, so <laughs> Solidly kind of respectable, probably, I mean, if I had to put a, put a grade on it, I'm probably a solidly kind of B plus. If I had really, really put my mind to it, I could have done better, but, but that was good enough. So, I mean, I was you know, an okay student. <laughs> that, that's, that, that is a great answer. I both, both <laughs> diplomatic and somewhat poetic. <laughs> don't, don't tell my kids that though. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, we are all role models in different, different ways. Uh, so let's talk about grad school. So you ended up going where for your graduate school? So I ended up going to the University of Victoria and that was sort of sheer luck. I had spent, as I, as I mentioned, I'd spent the summer between high school and university in uh, San Diego in La Jolla at a research station. And I actually was desperate to get back to San Diego. And I applied to the University of California at San Diego for graduate school. But even back then, you had to produce evidence of funding. And they were asking, they asked all of their applicants, their international applicants, you know, for a bank statement that showed that you had $10,000 in the bank. And there was no way we could, wow. no way I could do that. So one of my professors in my undergraduate at Exeter had said, well, why don't you try Commonwealth universities? Because there's much more exchange between Britain and New Zealand and Australia and Canada. And uh, I thought, okay, well, you know, that, was, that sounded interesting. So I actually wrote a bunch of applications to Canadian universities. I think I might have sent some off to Australian and Australian too, but Canada was a bit closer. And University of Victoria got back to me and offered me a scholarship before anybody else did. And I thought, oh, well, they're offering me money. That sounds pretty good. I'll go there. And this was not having, ha having any family or having ever been to the country or whatever. I mean, it's kind of stunning, shockingly naive in many ways. And so that's how I ended up being, going to, to UVic and being on the West Coast, which was um, incredibly fortunate. I mean, if it had been Winnipeg or Saskatoon and that first snowflake had come down in, you know, October, <laughs> I was playing back. But I ended up at UVic with a scholarship. 
you know, really hugely, hugely fortunate. No, no design, no plan, no nothing, just completely. Just you wanted to get to that Pacific coast as easily <laughs> as you could, huh? <laughs> I guess it was closer to San Diego than, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's a, for our listeners, that's a fun fact. Both Imogen and I both did our PhDs at the University of Victoria. So where did you go after Victoria? So then back in those days, back, you know, when <laughs> dinosaurs roamed the earth, um, <laughs> it was, um, it was almost standard. It was almost expected that if you wanted to go on as an academic scientist, you had to go away and do a prestigious postdoctoral fellowship somewhere. That was kind of what people did. And so my supervisor and a couple of other people had sort of given me some connections in San Francisco. Initially, I had an offer at Stanford to go and work there. Um, and then I ended up at uh, University of California, San Francisco in the medical school with a postdoc, um, doing a postdoctoral fellowship in San Francisco. So I spent three years, three fabulous years in San Francisco as a postdoc um, and then came back to Canada. Perfect. And so where did you land when you got back to Canada? So then I had, and then when I was postdocing at UCSF, I went to a conference in Rhode Island and met um, a fabulous researcher from the University of Alberta. And she was looking for a postdoc at that time. And I wanted to come back to Canada. So she sponsored me from the Alberta Heritage Foundation scholarship fellowship. And so I, which I got, and then I, so then I ended up going to the University of Alberta. So I went from San Francisco to Edmonton. You got your snowflake that you were looking yeah, for. Yeah, um, you know, a whole other cultural experience and did another postdoc there. And yeah. so what was the drive to, to come back to Canada at that point? Because you had mentioned this a couple of times, you know, you really love that West Coast, California, West Coast, and, and you had that opportunity. What was the drive to come back to Canada? Yeah, so having, having lived in the UK, I spent, traveled through Europe, um, spent some time living in the US, I really found Canada to be a place that was really well aligned with my kind of sense of, of social justice, with my quality of life. I liked the, the low density of people. I loved the natural environment. So I felt that Canada was very much my chosen uh, place I wanted to live. Um, I, I loved San Francisco, the fabulous people, but I didn't like American gun culture. I didn't like the healthcare system there. And I didn't want to go back to the UK where there was, where I really was very, had a heightened awareness of the class system or sort of elitism of the, the sort of the density of people there. So Canada was sort of very much a chosen place for me to decide that's where I'm going to live. Perfect. And so, okay. So after Edmonton, well then what? So after Edmonton, I was getting kind of old. It was time to get a proper job. Um, and so then I started applying for faculty positions you know, and the, the, the situation was was tight, but kind of much as it is now. And then so eventually I got a, an offer or a, you know, I was interviewed at uh, York University in Ontario. I would have, my, if somebody had said, where do you want to go? I would, I would have said stayed out west, but York offered me a position and it was a good position, a good offer. So I then moved to Ontario. And during your time at York, you, you established not only your independent research career, but you also established this, this leadership role that you grew into. What, what sort of, what promoted that? Like what motivated the, that? Because that's a lot of work. <laughs> Everybody knows that to, to manage both these portfolios is, is, is very time consuming. So, so what was the thinking in that process? Well, so I, I didn't set out, I didn't you know, start out thinking, oh my God, I want to be a chair of a department when I grow up. I was, you know, from the time I was a graduate student on, I would 
be the person who would be willing to have my name put forward as the departmental rep. So as a graduate student, I was the graduate student rep on the departmental council. And then, you know, there was a postdoc organization and they needed somebody who would be willing to represent other people. And so I found myself often in these positions where I would say, well, well, I'll do that. I'll speak to that. That's okay. Let me talk about that. And you don't have to worry about it. And, and I would be willing to do that and, you know, had a way that was able to do that. And then, so when I became, you know, a faculty member, in a department, you know, there were situations where something, I can't think of a specific, but there were situations where maybe something was happening or there was an issue or somebody needed to, to develop, pull people together and develop a strategy or a way of saying something. And I found myself quite often, quite often people would come to me and say, could you like, could you take that or could you say that? Could you take that on? Cause I'm afraid to speak up or I'm afraid to put myself forward either because they just didn't have that skill set or, or because they were uncomfortable or because they were worried about some kind of backlash or whatever. So I kind of found myself often being the representative, arguing on behalf of a group or a collective. Um, there was some, you know, there was a, some, some factions around one leadership position um and so i i said okay I'll, I'll put my name forward to be chair and i'll take this on and you know and then people say oh yeah yeah you're really good at that we want you to do that and you know it was endorsed there was a vote and all that kind of stuff and so i ended up doing that and so it, t it takes a lot of courage though i mean to to advocate on behalf of others and put yourself out there where do you think you got that that bold not boldness that's not the right word but that strength that inner fortitude to I don't know, to do the right thing, even sometimes when it's more difficult. Um, I think it probably comes back from the way I was raised. I think I was raised with a very strong sense of um, core values around integrity, respect, um, particularly respect for other people, respect for people that don't have a voice. I was, I was kind, of, kind of raised with strong social justice values that were just very normalized. So I think it comes from a sense of, a core sense of, you just do the right thing and it's not even necessarily courage it's just you know you do the right thing and it might not work what's the worst thing that's going to happen somebody's going to say no or somebody's going to you know somebody's going to say that's ridiculous well but if you have a strong sense of self if you have a strong sense of well i did the right thing or you know all of the day i'm very data driven let's look at all of the inform information let's look at all of the you know as much information as many of the facts to the data that we can, that we can get our hands on pull together a coherent argument and then present it. Um, and and for the, do it for the right reasons, not doing it because it's going to make me richer or famous or better, or I'm going to get more or something, or, you know, it's certainly not glamorous. It's certainly not, um, it's certainly not rewarding for people who are self-interested, but there is tremendous reward and tremendous satisfaction in seeing a collective succeed or seeing, somebody who maybe hasn't had an opportunity to have their voice have that person heard so I, I find that very satisfying so that reinforces my willingness to do it sorry courage isn't the absence of fear it's doing the right thing in the presence of fear so yeah and i think mark twain had a very similar uh, quote as well in, in that same sort of vein and and you actually brought your voice to ryerson and established the first Faculty of Science. So tell us about that transition and, and those, those, those first few years at Ryerson. 
that was that was kind of an interesting time for me. I had worked really, really hard at York. I'd done a lot of work for the Office of Research. I, I was the Associate Dean for Research and Partnerships. Done a lot of representative kind of work, been out there. I was the kind of person that they put in front of a crowd because I spoke well and I wouldn't embarrass the institution. So, so I'd done a huge amount of work. I was on Senate, I was on the Board of Governors. And there was a lot of transition, quite a lot of turmoil in the faculty. And there was a transition coming up. They were actually splitting that faculty as well. And they needed, it was a faculty of engineering and science and they were splitting it and they needed a Dean of Science. And so I was being encouraged to run for that position. And then somebody called me out of the blue and said, your name's been put forward for this position at Ryerson. And I really, like, I don't think I knew anybody at Ryerson and I didn't really know much about what was going on. So then I just started to think, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. And I, you know, I looked into it more and um, looked really interesting. And it was so, and it was also a good time for me to make a transition. I think I was a little bit burnt out at York. There had been a lot of turmoil. And I think it was, uh, I was being lobbied to be, you know, to run for Dean there. So it's kind of like, you know, when you're waiting for a bus and nothing comes along for hours and then two of them come along at the same time. <laughs> That's a great, that is a great example, actually. And it is so frustrating, yes. yes. <laughs> and then uh, the more I kind of looked into it, I thought, okay, this is really interesting. So I, so I put together a package and I gave it to the search consultant. And then I got a call, it was at a hockey tournament. I got a call saying, we, they want you to come for an interview. I said, oh, okay, well, that's kind of surprising. And they want you to come, you know, whenever it was. And I was going to be in England for my father's 80th birthday. And I said, no, I can't come that day because it's my father's birthday. <laughs> and the search consultant said, well, maybe you can, maybe we can do like a phone interview after your father's birthday party. And, you know, I thought, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> no, see, so, you know, so I kind of made them, I made the, the, the um, a committee wait um, a week or something like that, which I thought, okay, they'll probably say, no, we don't want you anymore because you've made us wait a week. But anyway, they didn't. So then I, I, so then I came for an interview and that was when I met Alan Shepard. And I have to say, he was really one of the reasons I came to Ryerson because at that time he was the provost. And I thought, here's a guy I can work with. I really found him to be very... I just on the way, same wavelength. I was very impressed. I thought he was, you know, he was a really good administrator, a really good person that if you were going to be a dean that you would want to work with somebody like that. Of course, five minutes later, he turned around and left. Um, yeah, <laughs> typical. <laughs> so, yeah, so then, um, you know, so then that, that seemed to work for everybody. And, and Alan and I chatted and he, and I said, you know, I, I have a research program. It's, I can't just like up and leave. And we talked that through and he said, you know, I understand my Dean of Engineering, my Dean of Science, you know, they have these things going on. We want to maintain and support that. And I hadn't really got a lot of that kind of support in terms of administrative positions from York at that time. So I thought, okay, here's an environment where, you know, the people who are responsible for these administrative positions kind of get what needs to be done. And so, so it was a tremendous opportunity, a tremendous, tremendous opportunity and honor to be a founding inaugural dean. Like very few people get to do that. So that was exciting, a little terrifying, but also exciting. And so when you got to Ryerson, I mean, one of the things that, that stands out in my mind is among many things, including our zone ecosystem and the things that I've worked closely with you on, 
is the your your real passion for STEM and that and really sort of looking at trying to promote everybody in EDI, equity, diversity, inclusion in STEM or community. Uh, yeah. Where did this come from? Obviously, your social justice component drove this this need, but why that particular pursuit? Well, so my passion for science and my uh, strong commitment to inclusion in science are really married. That's the two strands, two strands that have been intertwined my entire life, coming from a love of science, a, lot, a, a curiosity around the natural world from, from the earliest I can remember, along with a sense that, you know, um, not everybody gets to do what I do. So, um, and that comes from being raised with a set of values, I think, which were about respecting other people, about not making judgments about people. Um, and the fact that both of my parents came from very, very humble backgrounds and socioeconomic barriers to ac access to education. All my grandparents didn't finish high school. You know, so who gets to do what depends a lot on, you know, your color of your skin, your gender, your ethnicity, your sexuality, and sometimes the class that you're born into, socioeconomic barriers. And so to me, that was always very obvious. And I can remember from a very early age, just picking up, picking up signals, seeing barriers. I can remember at the age of seven, my class, my little co-ed class in my little primary school being divided and girls going off to sewing lessons and boys going off to woodworking lessons. And to me, that not making sense, that just like, not, not a gender thing, but just like, an arbitrary decision, like tall people and short people, or people with blue eyes and it didn't make any sense. And so, um, so I was always very had a very heightened awareness. I did a lot of reading. I had a sort of a parallel scholarship that I was immersed in. Um, and Ryerson had has a social justice mission. I mean, I think they actually much more live it and do it and act it than most other institutions. Many of which say they do these things, but don't actually actively do it you know, a, a strong awareness and an acquired expertise in the field that said, you know what, we're missing a whole bunch of talent. There's talent that sits on the sidelines. There's talent, there's talent that doesn't even get in the front door. Um, and we need that talent. We're a small population in a big country. So we need to, we need every ounce of brain power. And what can we be doing? What should we be doing um, to, to identify and remove those barriers? Um, Particular and, and Ryerson is a good place to do that. An incredibly diverse population, a heightened awareness anyway compared to other universities, which you know perhaps isn't saying much. But so so it was kind of a natural fit in in that sense. And I think given how many students, particularly when I started, given the pressure of application, the fact that a lot of kids wanted to come to Ryerson, we could be looking at, at, at how to actually make it more accessible, um, leverage all the talent that, that was drawn to Ryerson in science and in STEM. So to me, it's part of being a scientist. We should all be doing it. That should just be something we're all doing and thinking about all the time anyway. Yeah, and I still remember that you brought a number of really great workshops in this regard. And it, when you are in a sense of privilege, often you overlook the people who don't are or who are being left out or marginalized and it's not because you choose that it's because you're just oblivious to it because you everything is so charmed in your own life and i yeah. remember that workshop with uh ritu basan and i just remember it was like a wow moment for two days straight and i just i just still the, the value of those kind of messages to a lot of people who would be allies uh, of this cause is just Awesome. So thank you for, for doing all of that and continuing to do it. 
What about, before I even talk about your research specifically, how has the transition been out of the Dean and this? You're still obviously a very big advocate for uh, women in STEM, diversity, inclusion, but how, leaving the administrative rules, how has that been? Well, that was very interesting because they don't give you any training or they don't give you any <laughs> transition. So I thought it was going to be, I thought it was going to take me like weeks to kind of un uh, sort of untangle myself, particularly from initiatives that I'd be invested in or things that have been ongoing. And I was just having to step away from them and leave them. I thought that I would like be hanging on and I'd be wanting to follow up on emails and that kind of stuff. And I thought that would be going on for weeks. It, it actually only lasted about 15 minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was actually, I think I was ready for a break. I had to work very hard for six years and I had earned a well-deserved break. And so I think it was actually easier than I had anticipated. The transition you know, to teaching, which I hadn't done in a long time because I'd been an associate dean and chair was it was very it was very familiar but also but, but at the same time I still had to sort of think about logistics and things and I have to say that the the stepping away and my administrative leave also completely aligned with the last year of my father's life so in that sense much of that year away was taken up with um, trips back and forward to England lots of discussions about medical care and all sorts of things that were going on. So I had a lot of stuff going on and it also was my son's final year in school in grade 12. So I had a lot of stuff going on that, that kind of had my attention. So, so that's what I was thinking about. Yeah, and I, I mean, it's, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. That's not the silver lining that we're all looking for, but yeah, it's nice to sometimes rediscover or reconnect with things that you kind of, well, they weren't as high a priority, I guess. And, and it's nice to come very similar to what we're dealing with right now. It's nice to have those opportunities to reflect. What about your research though? So let's, there'll be lots of listeners, student listeners who will be curious about what you do. So, but there's lots of them, it's a diverse group. So how would you explain the Coles Notes version of, of what your research program is? So I'm a cell biologist. So everything I do is sort of looking at the level of the cell. And what I focus on is how things get in and out of cells. So what I study is a family of transporter proteins, they're called transporters, and they're specific for a class of chemicals that we have naturally occurring in our body and also chemicals that are designed as drugs. And these are nucleosides. So DNA and RNA have a whole bunch of building blocks, nucleotides, and those building blocks have to come from somewhere. Cells can make them or they can transport them in from outside of the cell. And they only come in through these special gateways or transporters, which is, the, is, which is what I study. And so also there are drugs that are designed to disrupt DNA, to stop cells dividing like cancer cells and virally infected cells. And they get in and out through these same transporter proteins. So I look at the structure, function, regulation, distribution, cell biology of transporters. Very cool. What do you like, as we sort of pivot here a little bit, what do you like best about your job? I like the, the diversity of things that, that you ha get to do. I mean, that's also a challenge at times, but you know, it's, it, it, if you're an academic scientist, it's always a voyage of discovery. So you're always looking for, you're always asking questions, looking for new things. I um, mean, you're always meeting new people every year, you get a new 
crop of students, you're meeting new people in collaborations, you get to travel places. So there's a lot of different things going on. And I like that diversity of, of activities and, and um, things that keep my brain really active and challenged. So I think that's probably what I like. Okay. And what do you like least about your job? Well, this job, what I like least is the commute. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the, the, the one downside of taking the job at Ryerson was I, I had the commute from hell. So uh, what do I like least? I think you know, I would have to say sometimes it's the diversity of things and the fact that you never get enough time to focus on one single thing for long enough. So it's, it's a bit of a, you know, double-edged sword. You know, sword, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, it's actually funny because Sarah Sabatino said the exact same thing in a recent interview. She said, there's just not enough time because I, there's so many things that you want to do that it really pulls you away in every direction. Okay, so what inspires you the most about your job? I really love to see other people succeed. And so there's nothing like seeing a young faculty member get their first grant. There's nothing like seeing a student who has struggled finally you know, have it all fall into place and, and recognize that they do have talent. There's nothing like helping a student recraft an application for something and then seeing them succeed and get, get whatever it is, um, achieve their potential. So I really find that very rewarding and inspiring. And it's a great job because we always have a new influx of people yeah. that can succeed. If we're talking about students, what do you think is that most important transferable skill or maybe a couple of transferable skills for students as they as they leave their undergraduate degree? What what would you like to see them every student have and why? Um, I would like I would like us to put a lot more emphasis and skills development around empathy and emotional quotient. I think that those are those are really high high priority qualities that I think will really help in whatever environment you're going forward to. The ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, the ability to, to, to relate to someone else. And I think particularly in an increasingly polarized world, I think we, we need to learn uh, active listening, active empathy um, and sympathy, which is the ability to have compassion. So I think those are really incredibly important skills that we don't pay enough attention to. I agree completely. And the, the empathy is essential for building any positive community. What do you, what do you look for as you're rounding out your team and recruiting students? What do you, what do you like to see in the students that work in your lab? I like to see a lot of self, I like people to be self-motivated. I like people to have confidence in their own independence. That, that's not to say that they have confidence in knowing stuff. I just like them to have confidence in their not knowing and to feel comfortable with saying, I don't know, you know, I don't know anything about this or I don't know what's going on. I feel comfortable and confident that that is a completely valuable and valid thing to, to bring to, to the research group, to bring to a lab meeting or whatever. So, you know, as Dean, because my time was so constrained, any student I took on, I said, you have to be self-motivated. If there is something you need to figure out, you're going to have to figure out it yourself or you're going to have to go find people to help you you can always ask me anytime open door email day or night whatever but it's up to you to take the initiative it's up to you to initiate the, the question so that sort of self-starter kind of ability was really important and, and empathy and compassion and, and working as a team 
Yeah, exactly. And and knowing, knowing thyself is really important. And for those listeners, if you ever do send Imogen an email, you get a response, usually a quite a long one, really quickly. She's very, very up. Very, 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 she provides okay. good feedback over digitally. That's something I've got, to, I've got to work on that. I'm very wordy. I need to be more concise. And it'll save you time at your end, too. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna move to the the rapid fire, a little bit of uh, fun questions where we get to know you a little bit better. So starting with the first question, what factoid do my colleagues know least about me? And obviously something that you're willing to share. <laughs> well, there's so many that I wouldn't share. <laughs> I was in the military reserves when I was an undergraduate. Oh, that is cool. I didn't know that either. That's that's awesome. And so, how long? How much of a time commitment was that? So it was in my second year at university and I only did a year. It was um, like every fourth weekend, no, one, like one evening a week, every fourth weekend. I think you were supposed to go for a week in the summer, but I can't remember. I, th I think we didn't have to do that. We got out of it somehow. So, and the, the reason that I did it was with two roommates, we decided it would be a good way to make a little bit of money. And we also would learn how to handle firearms, which we did. Very cool. And it also would have cut into those those sobering up or, or uh, hangover days because <laughs> you wouldn't have been able to. <laughs> that, was first year. that was first year. <laughs> yeah. uh, I know, but that's, that could have been the transition out of that behavior because uh, having a hangover and hearing a gun go off are probably two things you do not want. <laughs> what, what famous person, current or otherwise, would you most like to go to dinner with and why? Yeah, that's a really hard one. And I was just, I was listening to Michael Olson and he said, you know, sometimes you shouldn't meet your, your heroes and talk about James Watson. I think I'm going to go with uh, Ada Lovelace, who is no longer with us, but I think she would be a really interesting person because her father was Lord Byron, who was a completely dissolute artistic genius, a poet and a writer, but a just terrible person. And her mother was a very rigid logician, mathematician, and Ada Lovelace obviously is the mother of computer programming, the person that created the concept of a computer program like 200 years ago. So, and I think, and she liked to have a glass of wine. So I think we might get on quite well. Yeah, I think you guys would have some great stories. And I think there would be lots to unpack there. I didn't know that story with <laughs> Ada Lovelace. In fact, Ada, uh, so my former supervisor, who is now at UBC, has done a machine learning robot uh, that essentially replaces a bench chemist. <laughs> it's been, it's pretty uh -huh. spectacular and named it Ada after Ada Lovelace. So yeah. yeah, so her name lives long, lives on rather. Okay, so what is your uh, favorite food? I think cheese. That's an interesting, <laughs> that, that's the first time someone gave me <laughs> a dairy no, product. I, I've lived in, in North America for over 30 years and I still miss really good British cheese or European cheese. I still miss it. Uh, and I bought um, some apricot uh, Wensleydale cheese that I forgot how great cheese was uh, from the UK as well. It, 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 just going to the store in the UK is just, you could be there for hours just looking at the cheeses. It's incredible. What is your favorite beverage? My favorite beverage for special occasions and a great, a great slice of cheese would be a really good bottle of red wine. I, I like how you said a bottle, not just a glass. <laughs> yeah, okay, well, so. <laughs> yes, yeah, spread, spread over a couple of days, maybe, or with a group, yes. Yeah, not for me. Okay, <laughs> so what is your uh, favorite uh, color? Green. Okay, complete this sentence. Complete the sentence. If I was not a professor at Ryerson, I would like to be? 
Somebody who writes music for movies. Ooh. And Sarah Sabatinos wants to be a pianist, so you guys could get together. She could actually play the music that you uh, that you write. Well, if I hadn't done science, I would have done music. Very cool. I took music to quite a high level. So. Awesome. What did you? What instrument did you play? Piano. Okay, so there's two pianists. Okay, so something in the top ten of your bucket list. Gosh, I don't have a bucket list. I would like to visit all seven continents. All right. That's cool too. And you, because you were, you were taught in Britain, sometimes they think South America and North America are the same continent. You mean Antarctica as well, right? I, that's the one, well, no, I haven't been to, let's see. So I've been to Australia and I've been to South America, North America, Europe. I haven't been to India, but I've been to Korea. Um, and, I have, so, and I've been to South Africa. So I'd like to see a bit more of some of the big continents and I haven't been to Antarctica and I would like to go. Very cool, especially if someone who wanted to be a marine biologist, so you could watch the, the penguins get snafu'd by sharks and killer whales down there. That's right, yes. Who is your favorite role model or was your favorite role model? I don't really have role models. You know, my PhD supervisor was somebody I really looked up to and I thought, you know what, I'd like to be kind of like her. So she was at, at UVic. And I think she she was somebody I looked at, looked looked to and said she's kind of got all of the things that I would like to be when I grow up so she was a fantastic scientist she had a family she was a great colleague she was very funny you know so probably Nancy Sherwood at UVic. Sorry, Nancy Sherwood is that her name you said? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay perfect and uh, what would you say has been your greatest achievement thus far? Probably raising my two children to the age of 18 years old and keeping them alive. <laughs> cheese and wine isn't enough is that what you're saying <laughs> I think that's a pretty good achievement <laughs> yeah. and I, I think so too what was your greatest failure so far oh god there's so many um, <laughs> my greatest failure there's been a number of times when I've really let down some people close to me and I really really failed them so I think those were great failures and I learned from them. Excellent. And what are you most grateful for? Health and family. And everyone should be, especially in a time like this. What concerns you the most? What keeps you up at night? And, and it could be about something globally or it could be just something a little closer to home. Well, I think those two things are related. I think uh, these days, I think the state of the world keeps me up. I, I consider myself to be a pragmatic optimist or an optimistic pragmatist. And I, I have always been hopeful for the future, future for the next generation, the future for my kids, the future for the planet. But I find, my, I find that kind of being, having, I find that, that that has been eroded. I find that, that it, I have to work a little bit harder than I ever had to do now to to be intentionally hopeful and remind myself that that's my underlying nature because the state of the world, the state of politics, the state of the environment are all things that I are very worrying. So, yeah. and you know, I lie awake thinking about them. And I think if people were more empathetic and if they weren't so mean spirited, it seems like there's, everything is going in this weird direction. Like you mentioned politics as well. If people mm. were, that, that would go a long way, I think, probably to alleviating some of those concerns. Yeah. 
what uh, spot in the world do you most like traveling to? So I I do love going back to to England and to where I grew up. That that is a very pretty part of the world. It's a pretty country. English villages. And so, and so there's a strong emotional attachment there. I love the Mediterranean countries. I love Italy, good food, good wine, beautiful countryside. I like hot, sunny. So um, Spain, I have a collaborator in Barcelona. So the sort of Mediterranean European countries, I feel very at home in. And uh, I just love the, the lifestyle and the quality of life there. Perfect. What is your uh, most productive time of day? I'm pretty much a morning person. So, um, and I think it's, best time of the day. So I like getting up um, early. And I find right now that I'm almost on a, a sort of a farmer's schedule. So when, when I'm very light activated. So when, when, you know, when the sun comes up, I'm awake. And then I, when the sun goes down, I fall asleep. So, and that tends to be like right now in June, the, that tends to be in the morning before anybody else has got up and it's quiet and there's not much on the road and that kind of stuff. So I find that to be a very productive, quiet time for me. I, I love that time of day as well. And what is your favorite hobby? Probably walking my dogs in the forest, which isn't really a hobby, but it's my favorite thing to do. Fundamentally, I think I'm an introvert and I like to uh, be with my dogs, who I think as Mark Twain said, uh, nobody understands the genius of my conversation like my dog. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I'm being out in nature. So, you know, put those things together. That's, that's ideal for me. Perfect. Well, what piece of, of advice would you give your second year self? <laughs> to worry less about what other people think about me. Huh. That's really good. That's good for just anyone in general, yeah. anytime in your life. Excellent. Okay. Now we're going to go to our uh, coping with COVID section. And uh, specifically, what have, what have been your, like, you're, if you describe yourself as an introvert, this isn't, and you don't like the commute, <laughs> this isn't a bad situation currently for us. So, so how, what has been your biggest challenge in this uh, situation so far? Well, you know, recognizing the huge amount of privilege I have. And so I've been very, very fortunate that we can live in a very comfortable environment. We have lots of space. We're out in the country and uh you know we're very secure and not having to commute yes i get a lot of time back so um that's been a real a real privilege both of my kids my adult kids came home so we now have four adults in the house whereas you know not so long ago we just had two and so that's been a bit of a challenge because people aren't used to living with each other and my, my son and daughter don't always get on so but in the grand scheme of things that's you know it's it's really not been an issue so so just, yeah, spending time, like I've grown, I put, put, more, put, put more time into the garden, that kind of stuff. I do miss the connections. Although, you know, when I say I'm an introvert, that means I get my energy from going and walking my dogs in the, in, in the forest. But I do miss social interactions and being out in the country. It's not even like, you know, you can have accidental social interactions because we're out in a rural property. So, so that's been a little bit challenging and and we i've had to be kind of intentional about making sure i connect with people on friday afternoon you know wine sessions or whatever by zoom but compared to most people i keep reminding myself how fortunate i am and practicing intentional gratitude and i think and that that's a great advice and that actually answers the strategies for coping which is my second question uh what, what would you say has been the the silver lining in in this pandemic for you 
I think it's been the, the sort of enforced, the enforced unstructured time, which has really made me look at what it is I want to do with my time. Because previously, it was very scheduled and particularly as being a dean or you know in, or even just when you're teaching and you've got classes and and you know it's just, you're very scheduled and so you can't really think much about what you want to do with the rest of the time because you're always scrambling at least i am and so this now because the the whole kind of schedule has been blown up and and we have to create our own schedules and the schedules are very amorphous. I've really sort of had to think more about, well, what is it I want to do? How do I want to do that? What are the priorities? Including around things like, how am I going to teach two upper level courses in the fall? And maybe I'd just sit down and think deeply and have a, have a bit more time to maybe just like immerse myself in that. It's very anxiety inducing as well, but also, you know, I do have the luxury of having some time to think about it. My lab has been shut down. I don't know when my lab's going to open up because I'm not under the Ryerson umbrella. I'm in a different, whole different system. And, uh, you know, they could be shut. I don't, honestly, I don't know for how long. So, so this is a time to make the most of the fact that everything, my research is on hold. So. Awesome. And it is a great time to be creative, especially since we do have such enormous privilege and the opportunity and the time to do so and Imogen in the interest of time I'm gonna to have to end it there but this has been absolutely lovely and I really enjoyed learning more about you and this on a little bit more of a practical level and I'm sure our listeners did as well uh, mm -hmm. but 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 thanks for doing this we uh, I really appreciate when people make the time and you've always been a really big advocate of of, of different opportunities and and that deserves a, a big thank you for me so thank you very much for all of this my pleasure and thank you for doing this it's a very important contribution excellent well enjoy the your garden and the walk with your dogs and that glass of red wine and hopefully we'll be able to get together really soon to share another one absolutely sounds great take care you too bye for now bye.